Welcome back. This is a bonus episode of our Bad on Politics series. I'm Becca Freeman. And I'm Grace Atwood. And if you're new here or you haven't listened to one of our Bad on Politics episodes before, um, this is a monthly-ish series of bonus episodes that we started in 2019, and we're going to continue through the November election. And our goal here is to bring on experts to help us to understand what's happening in this confusing and fast-paced election cycle so we can make informed opinions and understand what is important right now. Yes. And today, we are so thrilled to have Steph Feldman join us. She is currently the National Policy Director for Vice President Joe Biden's presidential campaign, where she oversees all policy development and strategy on economic and domestic policy issues. She previously served as the inaugural policy director at the Biden Institute at the University of Delaware's School of Public Policy and Administration. Prior to her work at the university, she worked at the White House for five years, ultimately serving as Vice President Biden's Deputy Director for Domestic and Economic Policy. In the Vice President's office, she worked on a broad range of policy issues, including gun violence reduction, health care reform, and workforce development. Born and raised in Atlanta, she holds a JD from Yale Law School and a BA in Public Policy Studies from Duke University. Welcome, Steph. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It's so uh, great to talk to you today, Becca and Grace. We are so excited. And we're so excited that we're going to do things a little bit differently this episode. Um, okay. We wanted to get to know you a little bit and hear about your career just because I think it's so interesting. We've never talked to somebody about what it means to work in politics um, and how you get there. So we thought we would spend a couple minutes talking about your career and and what that means. And then we want to talk about all of Biden's policies and how you can get involved in the election and how you can make sure your vote is counted. Love it. Let's do it. So that's our agenda. So I guess the question we always ask our guests first is, can you walk us through your career from college to now? Like, how did you get to where you are today? Yeah. And thanks so much for letting me talk about that. Uh, I didn't really know people in politics when I was growing up either. I decided from a pretty early age, though, that that's what I wanted to do. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, got in a little bit of a feud with the Atlanta City Council. I don't think they knew we were in a feud, but I became (laughs) frustrated with some policies they were implementing uh, after doing some public service in the city and really decided that the way I wanted to make change was through policymaking. So I looked to people in Washington, decided that was my goal, didn't know anyone there. In college, I decided to study public policy, and then I looked at a bunch of resumes and bios for people who were working in jobs I thought looked interesting in Washington. It looked like pretty much all of them went to law school. So I decided I was going to Harvard Law School. That was my mission in life, to go to Harvard Law School. So junior year, senior year, I applied to Harvard Law School. Uh, I'm very fortunate I get in. I'm about ready to go. I have my deposit in. An amazing professor tells me, hey, Steph, just take one year off, go to DC, see if you actually like it, get some experience, just take one year off. So I take one year off. I apply to the White House internship program, cold. I don't know anyone at the White House. Didn't know if that's something you can really get or not (laughs) without knowing anyone there. I get placed in Vice President Biden's office doing domestic policy as an intern there. So that's right after college. I have the best three months of my life interning with his team. And then have about nine months left until law school. So I end up doing a couple other internships in D.C., really enjoy the experience. I pretty much run out my savings. I'm out of money. So I'm headed home and I get a call from the vice president's office saying they have an opening to be a policy assistant in his office. Do I want to take it? 
And then here we are 10 years later. But you did go to law school at some point in there. I did go to law school eventually. Yes, that is true. I took a I took a brief break uh, from Biden world to go to law school. So I made it. <laughs> this is really interesting to me. Like, I don't have any good friends that work in politics. So I, like, I don't. I don't know these kind of things. Is there like a standard career path for someone who works in politics? In some ways. So in some ways there is. So in D.C., uh, a lot of people come to the city when they're very young and there's a big culture of doing internships. So a lot of people intern on the Hill or they intern at an agency or they intern at the White House and really uh, earn their way up uh, is kind of the culture, which is why, by the way, it's so important that we're doing more and more paid internships, because if that process is unpaid, then it really locks a lot of people out of the process. But so internships are big. But I think the other weird thing about politics is your career is often very much affected by who you are end up working for. So I would not be in the position I am right now if I uh, had not started working for Vice President Biden 10 years ago and stuck with him. And so I think that careers in Washington end up being a, a really big compilation of timing and luck and in a way that not uh, every career path ends up being. So I'm super curious about this. What do you think is the biggest misconception about working in politics that you see on TV or in movies or in books? Yeah. So <laughs> I'm trying to think of which one I can say. So, um, <laughs> Oh, there's ones you can't say. We're going to have to get ooh, these off the air. Yeah, we're going to need these. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's always there's the joke about, you know, the TV show, The West Wing, which is maybe one of the most famous. Tele- yeah. And the joke about the what the TV show West Wing versus reality is that the the people at the White House are don't talk as fast, don't walk as fast and aren't as attractive, which is <laughs> uh, probably true. But really, I think actually the biggest misconception is that people who work in politics are very egotistical or focused on power. That is certainly true of some people. But I actually love the culture of people who are working in Washington by and large. I found it to be a group that is exceptionally committed to public service, to making our country better. They work really hard for uh decent pay, but not as much pay as they could potentially be getting and really are committed to to doing good. So I think it's really an amazing group of people by and large. And how do campaign teams come together? So in January, there were over 15 Democratic candidates who all had staff and now there's just one nominee. How does that all kind of consolidate and fold in? Yeah, well, it's really a wonderful part of the process because toward the beginning of the campaign, when it was just us in the primary, uh, well, well, and all the other 19 <laughs> or so uh, Democrats who were running for office, the campaign was a large number of people who had worked for Biden for quite a while, like me, and a few new people. And then as the primary winnowed, we pulled in people from the other campaigns And we've done that on the staff level. We've done that on the volunteer level. And it's really wonderful because we get fresh energy, fresh ideas. And at the end of the day, that is the key to a successful campaign because campaigns are about broadening the tent, bringing more people in, expanding expanding the conversation and reaching more people. So we can't win if we are not creating space for people who might have been supporting another candidate in the primary to join us in the general. And I'm curious specifically about Vice President Biden. So you, it doesn't sound like you necessarily directly chose to work with him. The White House intern program chose that. But I'm curious what your experience has been and like why you have stayed with him for the past 10 years with a mini break for law school, but otherwise pretty dedicatedly. 
Yeah. So this is my favorite question. Thank you. So you are right. So I liked Vice President Biden when, before I worked at the White House, sure, uh, who doesn't? but was not. Yeah. He likes ice not, cream. He like yes, the, exactly. <laughs> the Obama Biden memes. Like, yeah, exactly. Uh, but was not someone who, uh, you know, was an avid follower of the vice president's career or a huge vice president Biden fan. I am now a huge vice president Biden fan and honestly would not have stuck with him for so long if I was not a big believer in him. I have found him to be a person who has tremendous character and principle and is really just a good human who has sound judgment and has spent his entire career committed to public service. And by the way, someone who makes me want to be a better person every day because sometimes I'll be frustrated and I'll watch him interact with people and be like, oh, he's like so like generous and empathetic with that person. I have no right to be grumpy right now. And uh, so he just makes me want to learn more, be more effective at my job and do better for people. And so that's why I stayed with him. And I did find that, you know, when I graduated from college and came to Washington, I went with a good number of my classmates who also wanted to work in D.C., a lot of them left politics because they did not end up working for people who they inspired them and really motivated them to do the work every day. So I could not have been luckier to end up with Vice President Biden. Oh, I love that. That's like the answer I was hoping you would give. But um, (laughs) can you tell us a little bit more about your current role with the campaign? Like, what are your day-to-day responsibilities? You were hard to pin down. So thanks again for taking the time to to do this with us. Don't apologize. We are honored to to, that you made the time. Do not apologize. Yeah, well, this is a treat for me. So a lot of my job is helping Vice President Biden figure out what he wants to do as president and how he's going to talk about that to the American people to make the case to them why he should be president and why he should earn their vote. So early on in the campaign, a lot of that was developing the actual policies that we have put forward as his agenda. To do that, a lot of my day-to-day ends up being finding the right experts and working with them to write documents, to brief the vice president, and to work with the vice president to make to help him make final decisions regarding what he wants to run on and then how he talks about that in his speeches and his social media, uh, in his interviews. So it is half policy development, half messaging, uh, and is really, uh, you know, drives to the core of, uh, how a United States will look different in a Biden versus Trump administration. And I'm curious, did you work with vice president Biden in any of the Obama Biden elections? So I was at the White House yeah. in 2012. Okay. So I volu- I volunteered in 08, but I was still uh, in college, so didn't do a whole lot there. Uh, but in 2012, I was at the White House, and there are a number of restrictions that actually prevent staffers who are at the White House from doing a lot of political work. That makes so sense. I was not, yep, so for good reason. Which could be a whole nother podcast given <laughs> current events. So no, I did not work on his campaign in 2012, but was working with him during that period of time. So I imagine you at least had visibility, but I'm curious from your perspective, what has COVID changed about what it's like to work on a campaign and the campaign mm-hmm. process in general? I feel like we hear a ton about the implications for voters, but I don't know a ton about what it means for the candidates. Yes. Well, it is an entirely different world. So if we, if I think about the campaign until February, March, and since February, March, it's entirely different. And it's also weird, right? Because that's like at the exact same time that we started shifting from the primary to general 
to the general election. Senator Warren dropped out. Senator Sanders dropped out. There were a lot of changes happening in the campaign at that period of time. I can't complain because I still receive a paycheck. My family is healthy. I feel incredibly grateful for the situation I am in in this time when a lot of people are going through really tough times. But it is a bummer, I have to say, because one of the best parts of a campaign is the camaraderie and the energy you get from working with your colleagues every day. And so being in the office, going through the tough times and going through the great times, it's, uh, it makes it all worth it. And now we are all scattered across the country doing Zooms most of the day in order to get our work done. So I, it's, it's quite different. I imagine. Yep. Yeah. What would you, at this point in the election, like what would you be doing if, if it weren't for COVID? Like I feel like there would be a lot of in-person events and like rallies. Is that true or am I making that up? Yeah. Well, so it's interesting. So the campaign as a whole would definitely be doing more in-person events. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We would be on the road a lot. Huge credit to our advanced team, our digital team, our communications team who has figured out ways to essentially travel the country virtually but it would feel and look a lot differently if we were in person. Weirdly for me, as part of the policy team, it has changed my work too, because normally at this point in a campaign, we would be pretty much done with writing policy, but we're still writing a lot of policy because we are readjusting to the new reality that we are in the midst of a public health crisis and an economic crisis worsened by Trump's inability to get the virus under control. Plus, on top of that, a racial justice crisis fueled by President Trump's banning of the flames of hate. And so we are in a new reality that is different than six months ago. So we've been doing a lot of policy development that we wouldn't have been doing uh, in a normal campaign right now. Well, you gave us the perfect transition. Let's talk about that. I want to talk more about Vice President Biden's policy positions because, you know, I personally watched a lot of the debates, but, you know, because of COVID have seen news coverage, but, you know, haven't necessarily heard him talking about his policies as much as I might have otherwise, or I was during the debate time period. So I'm hoping you can help to explain to us what some of the policy positions that Biden has look like. Absolutely. So I want to start with COVID. So at the Democratic National Convention, which was last week, we heard a lot about love and light and about kind of coming out of this public health crisis. But I want to talk a little bit more specifically, like, what are Vice President Biden's plans to help the U.S. contain and recover from COVID? Yep. Great question. Okay, so I think just taking a step back here for a minute, sure. I think the big picture and the dramatic contrast between a President Biden and a President Trump is that Vice President Biden is someone who listens to scientists and empowers experts and comes up with strategic plans in order to get things done. And that is the exact opposite of the approach that President Trump has taken, where he has disempowered experts, denied the science, and still about six months into this crisis, doesn't have an actual plan in place to get control of the virus. Every week, the vice president has a meeting with me and his other policy advisors and a team of doctors and medical experts to get a status update on the virus and to talk about what we need to be doing in January in order to get this virus under control as quickly as possible. And that process has contributed to the development of a concrete plan has a bunch of steps in it, but just to talk about a couple of things. 
first, Vice President Biden has called for nationwide mask mandates, which is something that this president has refused uh, to call for. Uh, experts say that if 95% of Americans wear masks between now and December, we can save almost 70,000 lives, which is just a tremendous impact. Wow. So if Vice President Biden were president right now, he would be calling every governor and every elected official in this country and saying, this is what we need to do in order to protect lives and save lives. And if you are living in a state that does not have a nationwide mask mandate, well, you could do your part anyways by stepping up and doing something as simple as wearing a mask. Even if it's uncomfortable, that's what you can do to save lives. So that is a really great example of something basic that is a science-based policy plan that Vice President Biden would do. And now, just really briefly to get into to more specifics, the vice president has a plan to accelerate testing and tracing after President Trump has been unable to scale up testing to the capacity we need. So Vice President Biden would double the number of drive-through testing sites and also make sure that we are investing in next generation testing, which is essentially at-home tests. So you could get the test mailed to you, take it at home, mail it back to a lab in order to get results. He's also has a policy to get the personal protective equipment we need. So you are probably still reading about the fact that we have shortages of masks and gloves and other supplies, even for our healthcare providers. Vice President Biden has uh, proposed to use this law called the Defense Production Act, which allows the federal government to kind of step in and ramp up production of all of these supplies in a time of war, which is essentially what we are in at this moment. And then the vice president has a plan to ensure that once we have a vaccine that is safe, that we are ensuring that it is distributed in a safe and equitable way. This one is something I've been thinking a lot of about recently. If you just think through the, the sheer difficulty of coming up with a strategy to make sure that once we have a safe vaccine, that it's getting to the people who need it, it it's worrisome to think about whether President Trump could actually pull that off, given everything else he's done. So Vice President Biden is meeting with experts to think about how you ensure that, first of all, the vaccine is free. And second, that we are making sure it is reaching communities, including communities of color who are being disproportionately impacted by the, by this virus. So uh, I could go on and on, but those are a couple of the highlights of Vice President Biden's plan to get the virus under control. Thank you. Can I ask a follow-up question on testing? Please. So regarding testing, that obviously requires some partnership with the private sector as well. Is that something we have the capacity to do right now and just aren't doing because of disorganization or choice not to do it? Or is that something that would require ramp up that, you know, I guess I'm asking, could it happen on January? I don't know when the inauguration would be January, whatever. You you would know that date. 20th or 21st 20th. this year. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> Sometime around there. Yeah. Uh, so great question. So I think the the key here is that it will take some time. But what we need is we need a president who knows how to use all of the different levers of government to do it as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. So what we should have been doing for the past six months is getting everything into place and moving as quickly po- as possible. But instead of we have lost six months due to President Trump's inaction, the fact that he's frozen in time. So Vice President Biden, I can assure you that the, that he is already thinking about and the day after the election, if he wins, we'll have a transition team that is working full steam ahead to make sure that we are putting leadership in place that can scale up testing 
and scale up uh, production of all the protective equipment uh, as quickly as possible. Thank you for answering that. Yeah. Absolutely. So another issue that's really important to us as well as our listeners, and we've seen a lot of attacks on over the past four years, is women's issues. So we would love it if you could just talk a little bit about Biden's plan for reproductive health. Yeah, absolutely. Would love just to talk about women's issues uh, generally, if you don't mind for a second. Please. Um, I I have to say, so one thing that I have, uh, one of the many reasons I've stuck with Vice President Biden for so long is because he has a record of empowering women in his office uh, and putting them in leadership positions and really making sure that they have a seat at the table for the decision-making process. Uh, So I was really lucky early on in my career in the vice president's team to have a lot of women mentors because they were his senior counsel. They were his policy director. Uh, So uh, that is something that I always want to, I always talk to about my friends because I think that matters and illustrates a lot how seriously someone takes women's policy issues or women's issues generally, uh, because it really illustrates that he uh, sees women as equal and a force of nature, a a group that we need to be empowering to help lead our country. Uh, And as he says, every issue affects women and is a women's issue, but some issues disproportionately affect women. And uh, of course, one of those is uh, access to healthcare and women's health issues, which, which is the issue you raised. So we have seen a continuous effort by primarily Republicans uh, in the White House and at the state level to restrict women's access to the full scope of healthcare, including reproductive health, which is, by the way, healthcare. Vice President Biden, first and foremost, would send a bill to Congress to codify Roe. What codify means is essentially make sure that the law, that that Supreme Court decision, which gives women the right to choose Ensure that is enshrined in our law so no future Supreme Court could overturn it because it should not be in the hands of nine Supreme Court justices whether or not women have the right to make decisions regarding their own health care. So that's first and foremost uh, what vice president would do on this. Uh, But then there's so much more, right? So uh, he would take a stand and ensure his Justice Department takes a stand against the rash of state laws we've seen pop up across the country that restrict women's access to to reproductive health care. He would ensure that, once again, Planned Parenthood has access to federal funds. President Trump has set in place a requirement that ultimately prevents Planned Parenthood from getting any federal funding, which is outrageous and needs to be reversed. And that would be a, a priority in the Biden administration. And then Vice President Biden would also take steps to tackle Another crisis that we're having in this country, which is that women, particularly women of color, are dying during childbirth and in while pregnant at rates far higher than in other developed countries around the world. And so he has a, a plan that is essentially modeled af- after a strategy that was taken in California to dramatically reduce maternal mortality rates which is fundamental in order to make sure that we are protecting women in this country. Amazing. 
And what about women in the workplace? I'm curious what plans he has around both equal pay and also around family leave or even around other issues in the workplace that I might not even be thinking of off the top of my head. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I should have saved my uh, I should have saved my point about Vice President Biden empowering women in his own office uh, right for that right there. <laughs> but uh, I think that's that, that's part one, right, is that he is going to lead by example by making sure that women are senior across his administration, starting with our next vice president, our now Senator Kamala Harris, which uh, we are so excited about. But to, to get into more of uh, more of the details here, the vice president is a longtime advocate for equal pay for women. In fact, the first law that President Obama signed into office in the Obama-Biden administration was the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, which made it easier for women uh, to file lawsuits when they have been receiving unequal pay. And so Vice President Biden supports kind of the next step after the Lilly Ledbetter Act. It's called the Paycheck Fairness Act. It is something that further changes the regulations regarding lawsuits for equal pay. So women actually are able to go into court and get the money they deserve. Uh, It would be a huge step forward and is core to the vice president's agenda on workplace fairness. He also absolutely is a fighter for, for paid leave for men and women, and certainly thinks that that is something that we need to be fighting for. He has proposed to ensure that everyone in this country has up, access to up to 12 weeks of paid leave, which could be used if you give birth to a child, or if your partner gives birth to a child, or if you adopt a child, or if you or a loved one is ill. Or if you are a victim of gender-based violence, domestic violence, and need time to, to move, to seek services, to, to take other action. Uh, so that's a, that's a comprehensive plan, which would fundamentally change the lives of working women and working men as well uh, across the country. Absolutely. That would be incredible. I know this is something that a lot of my friends are thinking about a ton as you know they start to have children and kind of are realizing the realities of paid family leave in this country. Yeah, it is so hard to juggle work and family in this country and it just doesn't have to be that way. And especially even more so during COVID, I feel like a lot of parents have kind of struggled with new realities around um childcare and and what it means to work and parent. Yes, absolutely. I don't have kids personally, but my friends with kids are are definitely more appreciative than ever for our educators and our child care providers now that they are trying to jiggle everything at once. Absolutely. Yeah. So can we talk a little bit about healthcare? Because healthcare was something we were talking about a ton earlier in the year, but we've mm-hmm. had so many things happen. So we were curious, first of all, has it become less of a priority because of all these other more urgent issues? Mm-hmm. And also, what does Biden's health care plan look like? Preach, Grace. So I was saying <laughs> I was saying this yesterday uh, when I was on another call that we have got to keep talking about health care because even though there's so much else going on, uh, this is still an issue that when families are sitting down every night for dinner or when they are staying up late at night looking at the ceiling because they can't fall asleep because they're stressed out, this is one of the key issues that is still on their minds every day, which is access to affordable health care. I think that the coronavirus has only deepened Vice President Biden's resolve to not only protect 
the Affordable Care Act, but then build on it to make sure that every family in this country has access to quality and affordable health care. Just to talk a little bit about his plan, Vice President Biden has proposed to create a public option. So what that means is that you, yes, you, every one of your listeners will receive a new choice. You can have a private plan or you can pick this new public option, which would be not for profit. It would be administered by the same federal agency that administers Medicare today. And it would provide a quality, comprehensive healthcare option. So you can see right there, that's big because it provides a not-for-profit option and it provides a real competitor to private health insurance, regardless of whether you are getting that private health insurance on your own through the Obamacare marketplace today or whether you're getting it through your employer. And then he would take all sorts of other steps to help lower healthcare costs. So he would increase the generosity of the subsidies, the premium subsidies available under the Affordable Care Act, which help lower your premiums and help you buy insurance that has that requires lower out-of-pocket spending. So you won't be spending as much on your co-pays and your deductibles when you go to the doctor, when you, God forbid, break your leg. Uh, so that would be a big deal. Uh, and then he would also take on pharmaceutical companies uh, to lower your prescription drug costs. Uh, so those are the kind of the core tenets of Vice President Biden's health plan. And there couldn't be a bigger contrast here with President Trump. Right now, at this very moment, President Trump is asking the United States Supreme Court to overturn the entirety of the Affordable Care Act. That includes the Affordable Care Act provision that extended coverage to 20 million Americans that includes the Affordable Care Act provision that prohibits insurance companies from denying you coverage because you have a pre-existing condition, whether that be asthma or diabetes or cancer. That includes the provision of the Affordable Care Act that requires insurance companies to allow you to stay on your parents' plan until you're 26 years old. Uh, the fact that President Trump is doing this in the midst of a pandemic is galling. And so I just think there is almost no issue that better demonstrates what's at stake in uh, this election, what's on the ballot in November. The entire Affordable Care Act is on the ballot in November. That really puts it into perspective. Yeah. And honestly, I'm ashamed to admit is something I, I did not truly realize that this was um, being put in front of the Supreme Court kind of at this yes. moment. I feel like for me, it's gotten overshadowed by other news stories that I hadn't even heard that. Yeah. Same. Yeah. It's something I think about all the time. And because when you end up getting into policy conversations with people, I think there are a few issues that come up more than healthcare. And uh, it's also something that the vice president is personally quite committed to. I don't know if how much of the vice president's personal backstory you might know, but he is someone who lost a wife and daughter when he was quite young in a car accident. His sons were horribly injured when they were children. Thanks to health insurance, they were able to get the care they needed. And then one of his sons had brain cancer, eventually died from brain cancer, but again, had health insurance and access to quality health care. And so Vice President Biden knows what it feels like to know when you are going through really hard times, that at least you have the peace of mind of knowing that you will not have to say no to the care you need or that your loved one needs because you can't afford it. And so that's why he is going to fight for 
healthcare for other families in this country, just like he fought for his own family's healthcare. Yeah, that's amazing. So kind of switching gears a little bit, this summer we have been... There's so much to talk about. There's so much ground to cover. (laughs) Um, We want to ask you as many questions as we can while we have you. But this summer we've been talking a lot about racial inequality in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious what Biden's policy plans look like to address racial inequalities in the United States. Yes. So I think that this summer has sharply reminded us of the fact that we have a long history of systemic racism in this country. It existed long before President Trump took office, but has certainly been worsened by the fact that President Trump, through his words and actions, has given license to people who have spread hate. I So I was actually, um, go- going back to my backstory a little bit, I ended up going to help Vice President Biden set up the Biden Institute at the University of Delaware after he left the White House in 2017 and truly did not think he was going to run for president. Thought I was helping him continue to insert his important voice into policy conversations in a civilian capacity. But when Charlottesville happened, when we saw when we saw white supremacists take to the streets and then President Trump said that there were very fine people on both sides. That truly is the moment where Vice President Biden decided, I have got to do what I can in order to make sure that President Trump does not have another four years in this country. So this this is an issue that deeply motivates the vice president. And he has put out an agenda to take on racism across our laws and institutions, racism in our education system, racism in our health system, racism in our justice system, uh, and racism in our economic system. It really requires an all-of-the-above approach in order to take on this systemic issue. Do you want me to talk about, like, specific issues? Yeah, at a high level, I would be really curious what some of the tactical plans look like there. Let me start this way. So I think that this summer has brought to light, especially racial inequalities in our justice system and in policing, And so absolutely one core place we need to start tackling the issue of of racism is in our policing. So the vice president has a plan to take action immediately with some really with some steps that seem quite obvious, you know, banning chokeholds, requiring all police departments to adopt a national use of force standard to make sure that their officers are trained in de-escalation and to condition federal funds on law enforcement taking those actions. The vice president also has a plan to ensure that police departments pursue community policing and have the funds they need to do that. What community policing essentially is, is it is a theory of policing that law enforcement officers should be able to get out of their cruisers and instead go into the communities, get to know the communities they're supposed to serve and protect, go into the coffee shop, meet the neighbors, develop relationships that will allow them to do their job better and create a culture where uh, where the people they are, where their constituents do feel like they are being served and protected. So there are a number of things that need to be done in the policing space. But I think it is important at this moment to recognize that issues of systemic racism go so far beyond policing. They absolutely go into the justice, the broader justice system. 
which is why the vice president has a comprehensive plan to reduce incarceration while making our communities safer. That includes ending things like mandatory minimums and making sure that when people are arrested for drug use alone, that they are getting treatment for substance use disorders and not being sent to jail. We need to look beyond the justice system, though, because that's not where this story ends. It also entails making sure that uh, Black and Latino individuals and Indigenous individuals in this country who have never had fair access to economic opportunity have educational resources, are able to purchase homes and build wealth, have access to capital so they can start small businesses. The full scope of opportunity needs to be uh, made available to uh, communities of color in this country, and it never truly has been. And if somebody, I know we're only kind of touching on the high points, but if somebody wants to read more about these plans, are these on, on the website? Like, where do we go to, to read about like the comprehensive plan? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, would love for folks listening to check out our website. So if you go to joebiden.com, And at the top there, you're going to see a tab that says Joe's vision. That's Joe's vision. And that is where you can read all of his policy plans, including his criminal justice plan and his racial economic equity plan and all of the plans we've talked about today. Has Biden made his first 100 days priorities public? And what about day one plans? Yeah, so... Uh, we are really focused on making sure we win on November 3rd, which I want to talk more about in a minute. Yep. Uh, so have not thought too much on transition. What happens after the election is if you win, then you quickly set up a full transition team that spends the time between election day and the inauguration figuring out, okay, who is going to take all the different roles in the government? What are our first actions? But of course, we do have a general sense of what the first chunk of time of a Biden-Harris administration will look like, right? So I think Vice President Biden believes that the first responsibility of a president is to protect the health and safety of the American people. So he is going to first get this virus under control. And then second, he is going to work with Congress to enact his plan to pull us out of this economic recession, which has been worsened by Trump's failure to get the virus under control. So that means enacting his proposal, which he we call his Build Back Better agenda, because policy is always better with alliterations. <laughs> um, essentially, the theory here is that uh, we need to build back our country from this economic recession, but not just to the way it was before the virus or before President Trump took office, but better, which means making investments in clean energy and infrastructure to tackle climate change, making investments in early childhood education and long-term care to tackle the caregiving crisis, uh, investing in manufacturing to create jobs here in the United States. And the good news is all of those things are excellent ways to create jobs at a moment where Americans across the country need high-paying jobs that provide a choice to join a union and wages that allow them to support their families. Amazing. So we want to talk about what you just said, making sure that Biden does take office. So we have a couple of questions about voting and then also about how we can help. So I love that. 
the first thing, it's it's kind of a weird election. I feel like a lot of traditional forms of volunteering aren't necessarily options right now because a lot of it would be in person. So if somebody in our audience wants to help the campaign or formally volunteer, what is the best way to help? That's great. And I really hope everyone considers doing that. I know this is a moment in time when people have so much going on in their lives Uh, Maybe you've lost a job or you've seen your wages cut. Maybe you're juggling caring for your kids. Uh, Maybe you are experiencing in a really deep way the trauma of watching Black men be killed in this country. I hope that everyone is able to do what they can, though, to help us win in November because the stakes couldn't be higher. And I really don't want to wake up on November 4th and feel like I could have done something more to prevent President Trump from winning. So if you feel the same way and you're listening, here's what you can do. You can text women, that's W-O-M-E-N, to 30330. Perfect. That's text women to 30330. You're going to get a little response back. It's going to say, welcome to Women for Biden, which is essentially our network of women across the country who are organizing other women and other people in their community to get out the vote for Vice President Biden and Senator Harris. So once you're signed up for Women for Biden, you'll hear about different events we're doing, sometimes with pretty cool guest speakers. You'll also hear about uh, options for you to do phone banks. So from your home, you can sign up into our system and call people in the battleground states. Uh, to make sure that they are getting out the vote, to make sure that they are registered, to make sure that they know where their polling place is or they know how to request a mail-in ballot and to really make the case for why this election matters and why you think that they should vote for Vice President Biden. Uh, So that's the best way to make sure that you know uh, where the needs are and uh, how exactly you can help us. Okay. And speaking of mail-in ballots. Yes. Oh, my gosh. So we're hearing so much in the news about USPS funding and its potential impact on mail-in voting. Should we be worried? I just requested my absentee ballot yesterday. Um, Can you give us like a checklist to make sure our votes get counted? Yes. So uh, I don't think you should worry, but you should take action to make sure that you have a plan to vote. So I even had to do this, too, because I realized that I didn't know what the deadline was in the state where I'm living to make sure that my registration was updated. I've moved since the last election. So if you want to make sure that everything is in order, you can, to the same number I just mentioned, uh, you can text VOTE, that's VOTE to 30330. And then the campaign will walk you through a process to make sure you are registered to vote and that you know what your options are to vote. I personally decided that I am going to early vote, which is an option in my state and is an option in a lot of states. I'm going to put on a mask and I am going to go at probably as early as possible early vote and then use the rest of the early vote period and election day, calling my friends and making sure that they are doing the same. Amazing. And if I text vote to 30330, will it tell me if my state has early voting? Yes. So it will tell you. So first it will send you to a place to make sure that you are registered. And then it will walk you through what different options you have. So you can figure out what makes the most sense for you uh, in your state and what your voting windows are. Amazing. This sounds like the easiest thing in the world. 
it is, uh, it is not that hard. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think the effort it takes to vote and to make sure that your voice is counted is worth it. When you, you think about everything we've talked about for, uh, for, for this conversation and everything that is at stake. Absolutely. Steph, I cannot thank you enough for joining us and sharing with us your career and talking to us more about Vice President Biden's policy positions and making sure that we're ready to vote. Is there anything else that people could do to help the campaign or stay up to date that they should know about other than texting women and vote (laughs) to 30330? Well, this was so fun. Thank you for having me on. Uh, What a a great break in my day to be able to chat with you, Grace and Becca. Uh, I think that texting vote and women to 30330 is a great step. The last thing I would tell you, though, if you are listening, is don't underestimate the power of your own networks. Talking to your friends, talking to your coworkers, talking to your neighbors about why you are voting for Joe and why you feel like this election is important, that can have a huge difference. And so you matter in this election, your voice matters, and you can make a difference here. Amazing. What a hopeful, optimistic place to leave this. Thank you so much. (laughs) This was really fun. Thanks so much. 